The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. I'm glad that uh, everybody's here this morning because I think you're going to like this lesson. There's some really neat stuff in here. And I've titled the lesson God's Incomparable Paradox because I want to put into context where he is in his life. Because if I don't, you miss what he's struggling with as you see this text play out. He's 60 years old now, give or take a year either direction. His body is battered beyond our comprehension. He's got 90-plus welts permanently scarred on his chest and back and the back of his legs. He's got constant headaches. He's got vision problems. He's got stomach problems. He is so bad off, he has a permanent physician, Luke, traveling with him everywhere he goes because he can't function without a medical doctor by his side. Every day hurts to get out of bed. Every day he's got a job to do that God has called him to do. Plus, he's got to figure out where he's going to get money from for food and where he's going to stay and a host of other issues or how he's going to take care of his colleagues. And then he finds himself in prison and he finds himself unjustly accused, found innocent by his government, yet he's still in jail he finally gets a chance to get the free voyage to Rome, and on the way he goes through a hurricane and ends up shipwrecked after almost losing his life, and it makes you wonder, God, I'm supposed to be one of the good guys. All of these prayer requests aren't being answered. My body is just destroyed, and I can't take, I don't feel like I can take another step forward, and you just wonder why God doesn't do the thing you want him to do. You want health, you want the headaches to stop, you want your vision to improve, you want your stomach to feel better, you want to be able to live life without a doctor, you want to be released from prison, you want all these answers to prayer, and it's not happening because God's got a bigger plan that you can't see. And so I describe it as an incomprehensible paradox because our limited vision gives us an inability to see what God has in store for us over the next hill. So as we go through the end of Acts, we see a number of little truths that we can draw out about how we deal with our lives when we're facing that mystery of God, the mystery of God's will, the mystery of God's person. It's just not right in front of us sitting down explaining what's going to happen today or next week or next year. So we live in this mystery. So Paul gives us uh, through Dr. Luke's letter here as it ends in chapter 28, some great insight into how we live when our prayers aren't answered and we just don't understand understand why we, one of God's servants, is just getting beat up by life. Now, let me put this into context. If you were here last week, this little bit of review, if not, I'm catching you up to speed. Paul is being carried uh, from the place that he got transferred out of prison down in Caesarea up to Sidon where he gets a bigger boat and he sails across the Mediterranean on a very large commercial shipping vessel with his armed guards headed ultimately over to Italy. Uh, when they're in uh, 
Claudia, they pick up a new boat. It's a very large boat carrying many, many hundreds of tons of grain. They start sailing for Italy. They encounter the hurricane and they end up shipwrecked off of Malta or on Malta. I showed you this map last week. I put a little arrow down here to a little bitty uh, place, a site called San Paoli Milkai. I'll show you that in a minute. I mentioned last week that uh, the Luke, uh, sorry, Dr. Luke says in Acts 27, as they're battering the hurricane, they start to think they're getting close to land and they start figuring out how deep the water is. And when they were at 15 fathoms, which is about 95 feet, they dropped the anchors to let the wind carry them into the shore as fast as they could. I mentioned last week they found four anchors right offshore, and this is significant because this is not a Roman fishing port. The Romans would not stop here. They would sail on to Sicily. So the only people that stayed here were people that got stuck. And I mentioned last week they found some anchors uh, offshore where I've marked it with the arrow. And uh, what I did not tell you last week is they found four anchors, Luke says they dropped four, in 15 fathoms of water, about 95 feet. Uh, after class last week, Paul uh, told me that he and Cindy uh, went into the museum and saw these things just a couple of weeks ago when they were on Malta. And just to put that anchor into size, if you were standing there in front of that purple stand, uh, your body would be so thin, no matter how what size you are, you'd still see purple next to you. So your body is basically the size of the center of that anchor. So if you held out your arms, there'd be multiple feet of anchor still off to the side. So these things are huge. So they're on Malta, and Acts 28 starts with Paul and his shipwrecked companions. They're on Malta. Let's learn some truths about living with God's paradox. Verse 1, after we were brought safely through, that's the hurricane we studied last week, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting, they, the natives, were waiting on him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. When they'd waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, let me talk about a couple of things here. On your outline, I put a comment about a note on Paul's faith. I highlighted native people. That's not really a good translation. It's accurate, but the word that Luke uses is barbarian. And he uses that word not to mean they were particularly uneducated or crazy. He uses that to mean they did not speak Greek or Latin. They were not Roman citizens. They would not have been educated in his customs or done anything that he was used to but he still would have had a belief, I'm going to be okay. He gets bitten on the hand by a viper, and, 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 and Luke's use of the word viper here is the Greek word for poisonous snake. So it's clearly a poisonous snake, but for whatever reason, with God's protection, he doesn't die. Now, I want to point out here that uh, the little passage about he suffered no harm, uh, a lot of people have misinterpreted that if you've got enough willpower... You can have enough faith to overcome anything. And that's a little bit of a misfocus because faith biblically is very, very important. But the level of our faith is not the standard. What the standard is, is how big God is and what God wants to do. So the point I want to make here is whether Paul has a whole bunch of faith or whether Paul has a little faith because he's got a big God that said, you're going to go talk to Caesar 
and share the gospel to the ruler of the biggest world government that has ever existed at that point in time, the level of Paul's faith does not matter. So do not read this passage and say, oh wow, Paul must have had incredible faith because he can play with poisonous snakes. If you and I play with poisonous snakes, no matter how much faith we have, our stupidity is likely to result in our death. The issue for Paul has nothing to do with his faith. It has to do with how big God is and what God's plan is. So don't misinterpret it. The other note here on Paul's protection is that the purpose of this supernatural event is not for Paul. Now, clearly God wants to keep him alive, but you got to realize where they are. Paul's got 276 guys that survived the hurricane and the shipwreck with him. They're on shore. All of them prayed to be saved, but only a handful of them understand what that means or were truly committed to understand who God is and who Jesus Christ is. So this miracle is going to be the first of two to get those guys converted to a true faith. And it's intended to get the people on Malta to realize who is Yahweh God, who is Jesus Christ, and what does that mean? So the purpose of Paul suffering no harm has nothing to do with Paul. He's an instrument for God leading to salvation, the guys from the shipwreck, and everybody else on Malta. So as he goes through this situation with the fire and then he goes into town, uh, it's all about everybody else around him. Paul's just an instrument. Now, on your outline, I commented Paul's uh, God's healing of other people through Paul. Notice what verse, uh, verse 7 says. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. On your outline, I put a note about his miraculous healing. Because once again here, the purpose of Paul healing is not for Paul to necessarily make somebody healthy because we don't hear anything else about anybody that's healed. It's just like Lazarus in Jesus' account of healing Lazarus. You don't hear anything else about Lazarus in terms of why God wanted him alive. It doesn't talk about people he led to the Lord, churches he established. The point of the miracle was for everybody else who saw it. So the point of God healing somebody was not for their healing. It was for everybody else who saw the healing. So many times our prayers are so self-centered, our prayers for healing, I believe, are never answered by God because our focus is on ourselves. God, heal me from whatever it is we're struggling with because I want to be healed because of my job, my family, me, 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 me. Every time God heals somebody in the Bible, it's for somebody else's purpose. It's not for the purpose being healed. So as we pray for healing, think about praying for the evangelistic opportunity that healing would provide for other people. Now, God may or may not answer that based upon his ultimate will that we can't see. That's part of the hard paradox to understand. But the point is, biblically, this is not for the people being healed. It's not for Paul. It's for everybody else around him to see the miracle. Now, the life lesson I pointed out on your outline is everybody comes rushing to him. Do not assume everybody became a Christian. 
A number did, but a whole bunch of people just want him because he's the equivalent of the lamp that you rub and hope the genie comes out and gives you all of your wishes. That's what most of the people who came to Paul wanted. And so the life lesson here is be careful of people who only want your blessing. They want to be around you because things happen to you. They want to be around you because of uh, an aspect of your joy and your soul and your just interpersonal reactions because of your Christian life and your Christian walk. It's amazing to me how I see people want to be around me or Natalie or want to be around my law firm because of what we do as Christians. And sometimes I got to be careful because I find people that want to be with us just because they think some good luck's going to rub off on them and they'll have a good marriage or they'll be happy or they'll be a good lawyer, whatever the situation is. So be very, very, very careful. It doesn't mean you push them away. It just means you've got an awareness that, that, that God's got to move in their heart. You can't individually do anything with them. Now, I've made a historical note because I think this is really, really cool. I told you the story about the guy that started this, the guy that welcomed into their home. His name was Publius. He, in history, became the pastor of the church at Malta. He was so successful as the pastor in Malta for 31 years that he then became the pastor of the Christian church in Athens. He was so successful that he got the attention of the emperor, Caesar Hadrian, in 125 AD, and Hadrian ordered him killed. And so he pastored for almost 50 years after this story, and this picture of him, which I guarantee you does not look like him, sits in the middle of the main town in Malta. I guarantee you in the first century, he did not wear a Pope hat. Uh, I guarantee you he did not wear a gold jacket or gold vest like that. And I guarantee you probably didn't look like that because that looks a little more uh, European than it does uh, for Malta. The other thing that's cool is we know that the Christian church in Malta exploded. Virtually the whole island had a massive Christian influence in the years after Paul. And we know that because the catacombs underneath the main city where they would bury people has Christian marks on the wall. And they've dated these from the first century, from the time after Paul. And these catacombs are huge. They would bury thousands and thousands of people down here. And they discovered thousands and thousands of markers where they would lay people and then mark above where their head would be wrapped up in their burial clothes, uh, the mark of Christianity. This is kind of cool. They've dated this to the end of the first century. It's called an agape table, and they named it an agape table because when they would bury somebody after Paul left, they would do the Lord's Supper. And so they would do the Lord's Supper in these catacombs, and so the really, really rich people, when they would carve out the stones where their family would be buried, they created an agape table. This is a first century inscription. You can see on this post and on that post a circle with a cross through it. The circle, the sign of Christian unity, in the center of it, a cross that's just a standard cross, not one that would be kind of elevated that we would call a Roman cross. This is from the early 2nd century, and it's clearly Christian because it has the symbol of the Cairo, uh, which are the two Greek letters in the name Christian. It's the Greek letters for the C and the H in Christian. 
And the reason they didn't use the initials JC or the equivalent of Jesus Christ is that's too obvious. And the Romans that hated Christianity would kill them. So they used the Cairo as kind of a secret club symbol for Christian, CH, because it could mean a lot of things. But when you see it uh, in tombs or as a tattoo or as a work of art, those two letters of the C and the H in, uh, in the Greek letters are the early symbol of Christianity. So this would have been a symbol of a really large tomb uh, in a very large room. The other thing that's kind of cool is that this is what's believed to be the location of the first church that was established after Paul left Malta. Uh, it was a pagan temple for thousands of years before Paul showed up. So many people became Christians, they stopped having pagan worship, they put a church on top of it, and they know from the ruins it dates from the end of the first century. So I think all that stuff's pretty cool, and uh, it's uh, if you go to Malta today, uh, they literally trace the origin of their faith back to Paul and their very first pastor, Publius, uh, which I think is pretty cool. Now, we continue with the next part, which is God's encouragement. So we see... How do you get through the weird paradox of life? We've looked at protection. We've looked at healing, maybe not of us, but of somebody around us that encourages us and we see God working. We also see direct encouragement. Verse 11, after three months, okay, so we're in November of 60 AD when the hurricane puts them on the shore. Three months puts us into February of 61. We set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island. It got stuck as well. A ship of Alexandria. In other words, it's from Egypt. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regum. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Petoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So our point here is Paul travels a very long ways, and I'm going to break this down for you in a minute. He's encouraged. He's beaten up. He's worn out. He had this great little experience on Malta where they give him enough food to survive the winter. They give him and his 260 shipmates enough food to get on to Rome, and so there's encouragement because God's answering these prayers and taking care of them. Let me show you some cool stuff about what they did. The first thing I highlighted was Syracuse. You think that's upper New York? You haven't traveled the Mediterranean enough. It's in Sicily. It's on the west coast of Sicily, so they're down in Malta. They sail north when the winds are good, and they go up to Syracuse. Syracuse is cool because the tradition tells us that there was a uh, Roman temple there of Dionysius where Paul preached. And after Paul preached there, so many people became Christians, they started having church there. A hundred years after Paul, they built a church there. It's called the Church of St. Paul in Syracuse, Sicily. Uh, and that church and the people of Sicily, tr uh, 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 tradition says, date their Christian history back to Paul, stopping briefly at that island just to share his faith with them. Then it references sailing farther north through Regum. He doesn't stop there very often in one day. And then they go on to Petoli. You've never heard of Petoli. If this says Naples, you suddenly know what it's talking about. If it says Pompeii, you suddenly know what it's talking about. Petoli is right next door. So they sail north. 
they go across that little first little town and they sail up. That's the Amalfi Coast. And they sail basically across the Bay of Naples to Patoli, which was the main shipping port where everyone then gets on the road and goes farther north up into Rome. Now, here's why this is kind of cool. Because this town called Patoli was the main shipping port. Naples was a gorgeous city where a lot of the nobles from Rome would have uh, summer villas, or actually they're winter villas because they're further south. You can see where Mount Vesuvius is. You can see where Pompeii is. As Paul sails across this bay for the first time in his life, he would have seen Mount Vesuvius. This is a picture from when Natalie and I were there, and you can see Naples now has gotten really big and now goes around the base of it. Now, because of the eruption that happened 18 years after Paul sailed through there, that mountain was about 800 feet higher. The top of the mountain got blown off, and that's why Pompeii and Herculaneum got buried. But when Paul sails across this, this is a monstrous mountain, a monstrous volcano that just had a perfect crater at the top and a little whiff of white smoke coming up, and Paul wondering, I wonder, wonder when that thing's going to erupt. It did 18 months later, and it was the biggest volcano in European history at that particular point in time. The cool thing about Paul going to this port in Patoli is at the time, because it was such a huge shipping port, it had an enormous stone pier that went out into the water. It had 25 arches on it, so numerous ships potentially 50 at a time, could pull up next to this pier and unload. So 50 ships a day could load and unload and then sail off into the med. And the cool thing about it is 15 of the arches on that pier are still there, and you can see it today. So what I've shown you is actually on land. It's silted in over the last 2,000 years, so it's really close to the water, but it's not in the water like it was at Paul. But Paul would have sailed up next to that structure you see on the screen and then would have walked through that hallway. That very hallway is where Paul would have walked to set foot for the first time on in Italy on his way to start going to Rome. So they've obviously made some uh, updates to it to keep rocks from falling in, but those are the original first century stones, uh, and obviously the, fir or the, the stones that were there in the first century, uh, and that's the hallway Paul would have walked down coming in from his boat and then walking out with all of his companions and his armed guard to get where he was going. Now, it says at the very, very end, they came as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns. Today, this we know exactly where it is, but there's not a city here. There's not a building here. The road Paul is walking on is called the Appian Way, and it was their equivalent of an interstate highway. By that, I mean it's not big. It's not necessarily paved with asphalt or concrete. It's got really good stones on it, but every 140 feet... There was a bench you could sit down on and rest your feet or knock the dirt and mud off your feet. Every 19 miles, there was a place where you could get food and change your horses. Every 19 miles. I mean, that is a really well-structured highway system because it would have been run by the government, not necessarily by private enterprise like we do today. So you can see on my map these two little stopping points. And the significance here is 
This is 35 miles from Rome and 50 miles from Rome. And the passage in Dr. Luke says, when they hear Paul's coming, some of the Christians in Rome travel 35 miles and 50 miles just to say, Paul, welcome to Italy. It's awesome encouragement because Paul didn't send out words saying, I'm coming. Remember, he wrote him the letter that we call Romans. We studied a couple of weeks ago. He wrote it in Ephesus. When he shows up, they're so happy to see him. They travel 50 miles on foot, which is a two-day journey just to say welcome. That's pretty good encouragement. Now, the first city of the form of Appius is right here. There would have been uh, some buildings here, a place they could eat. They could, uh, if they wanted to, change their horses. The road still exists. That's the exact road Paul walked down. You can go walk down it yourself. Uh, they've saved the Appian Way because it's such a significant thing of history. And you'll notice when you get to the three taverns, the three taverns don't exist anymore, but the spot on the road exists, and you notice the stones are a little bit smoother, a little bit flatter. As you get closer to Rome, the highway gets better. So 50 miles out, it's a little rough. 35 miles out, it's a little bit smoother, and we don't have any of the taverns, but they would have looked like this tavern. This is one of the taverns from Pompeii, which would have been same time period, just a few miles away, and it would have been full of merchants and food and cooking, and you could get all kinds of breads, and uh, I'm not sure if they had pizza, but you get the equivalent of pizza, <laughs> and uh, it would have been a great place. So then they go the rest of the way into Rome. They would have gone down this road into the center of what's called the Roman Forum. It's the center of town. There was a gold post right off there to the side, and the gold post was from which every mile marker right here in the Roman Empire would have been measured. So if it told you you're 50 miles from Rome or 35 miles or 3,000 miles from Rome, it was measuring from that post in the middle of that forum. This is the Arch of Julius Caesar. It still exists. I'll show it to you in a minute. The side of this building still exists. I'm going to show you these columns right here. So the Arch of Julius Caesar still stands. Paul would have walked right through that. The, the columns of this building remain. Nothing else remains. It got knocked down over the centuries. If you go look at it today, as Natalie and I did a couple of years ago, that's the arch of Julius Caesar. Paul would have come right down that road. The golden spike would have been right there. He would have walked through there with his soldiers and onto their barracks. This is the facade of that building I just showed you facing the arch of Julius Caesar. And you can go walk through there today. They've kept it open. And it's the form of Rome, and it's pretty cool. Paul then walks with his soldiers through the form right here. So they come in through the gate to the form, and they head up to the northeast side of town where the barracks are of the Roman Praetorium, the guards of the emperor, which were also the guards of uh, prisoners from outside of Rome. That's what an artist said the, the barracks looked like. They're lifetime soldiers. Their job was to take care of the, uh, the emperor and all of his chief uh, noblemen. Uh, they weren't married. They were lifetime military guys. And the cool thing about this, it's not where Paul stayed. It's where his guards stayed for the next two years. And they found it eight years ago while digging a subway tunnel. 
So you can go there today, and that's the remains and the rooms of where Paul's guards would have stayed. And as you'll see as we get into the writings of Paul that follow this, because one of these guys is chained to his left hand for the next two years, he converts them all to Christianity. So this barracks became a barrack of Christian soldiers whose job was to guard the Roman emperor. I'll do a deeper dive when we come to that passage, but that's pretty cool. Now, what you got to understand about Rome is when Paul walks in is we think of it in terms of the rich and the rich. We think about the emperor. We think about the big landowners. There were some wealthy people in Rome. Part of the center forum was incredible. The things the emperor built was incredible. Rome was a dump. Two million people lived in six square miles. A million of them were slaves. 900 and uh, about 900,000 of them were what we'd call lower class. They were free, but they were blue collar workers, uneducated, manual laborers. 100,000 you'd classify as upper middle class, and then a handful that were really, really wealthy. So everything you see that survives was that little bit from the wealthy. Everything else burned down or got torn down. This is an artist's recreation of the Circus Maximus, which was their racetrack. Uh, we all saw it in the old movie Ben-Hur, where they raced the chariots. Uh, I point this out because it was the largest man-made structure on the planet Earth at this time. 125,000 people could come here and watch races or gladiatorial events because the Colosseum hasn't been built yet. So they would fight gladiatorial events all over this thing, and because there's 125,000, you might have 10 different battles going on at the same time across this thing as they would literally fight to the death. Uh, another recreation of the center part of town that's got some really cool structures to it. The point is, Paul doesn't get to visit any of it. Paul's under house arrest. He's going to spend the next two years stuck in the nicest prison he's been in, other than that equivalent in Caesarea of what I called the Four Seasons. He's in a private rented house, but he doesn't leave. So he doesn't get to go into town. If you want to see Paul, you got to come to him. The next point on your outline was because uh, we uh, is God's blessing. And God's blessing is in verse 16. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldiers who guarded him. Luke doesn't tell us why, but the circumstances indicate there's two reasons why Paul got a house all by himself. Actually, there's three reasons. Number one, he's a Roman citizen that has not been convicted. Remember, to get there, God worked out the circumstances, so the Romans said, this guy's innocent. So he's been declared innocent. So if you've been declared innocent, you don't have to stay in the gross prison with everybody else who's been accused of guilty. Number two, remember what he's done for the last six months. He's been chained to a Roman centurion who now is his friend and a strong Christian. This guy marches into the praetorium and said, this guy is my brother and one of the most awesome Roman citizens I've ever met. Treat him well. Number three, remember what happened when they left Malta. They gave them everything they had. They gave them money. They gave them food. So Paul shows up with enough money to pay two years' rent in a private apartment all by himself. That's amazing blessing from God. 
Paul's not making tents because he's been in prison now for more than two and a half years uh, or in captivity. Uh, he doesn't have any way to get money. Dr. Luke doesn't have any money. And so God blesses him through his circumstances. Now, we may look at that and say, God, when are you going to answer my prayers and let me go witness to Caesar? God's saying, in due time, you're going to stay here and you're going to disciple one-on-one. You're going to teach one-on-one and you're going to write some books. So the opportunity was God put him in a place of protection where he could do amazing things that you get to see over the next couple of months as we finish out his life. But the opportunities were what God wanted, not what Paul fantasized would be a better life. Because the frustration with the paradox of life is we've got a mental fantasy of what we want life to be. And that's not what God wants life to be because he can see over the hills ahead. We can't. So we live in this fantasy world that results in frustration when the fantasy doesn't come true. God's providence is incredible here. He's tied by a small lightweight chain that would have been about eight feet long from a Roman guard. So if he's got to go to the bathroom, the Roman guard's going with him. If he's talking to somebody and witnessing to somebody, the Roman guard's hearing the story. If no one else is around, Paul's talking to him because there's no no entertainment to watch, no entertainment to do. So he's one-on-one with guards 24 hours a day. The guards worked eight-hour shifts. Every eight hours, a new one would come in. Paul got three new guards every day, and it was an amazing witnessing opportunity. But the providence describes something that happens with the Jews who come to see him. On your outline, I describe it as God's providence. Notice what it says about verse twenty or verse 17. After three days, so he's been in his private prison for three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty. In other words, they found me not guilty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, although I had no charge to bring against my nation." For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here from Jerusalem has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, i.e. Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Now, Here's what you got to understand to make this make sense. At the time in Rome, Jews were hated. They were forced to live in a ghetto in the southeast corner of town. We know from the historical record exactly what the streets were around it. We know what the rules were. In 19 BC, the Roman emperor said, Jews are scum, get out of Rome. In 12 AD, the emperor did the exact same thing and said, the Jews come back, I'm serious, get out of Rome. In 52 AD, the emperor said, not only do all the Jews have to leave Rome, they got to leave the entire peninsula of Italy, get off this country. And the Jews were banished. They infiltrated back in. By the time Paul is there, there are a couple of thousand Jews that have worked their way back in between 52 AD when they were banished. It's now 61 AD and the Jews come back in 
and they were hated, and all Paul has to do as an esteemed citizen, if he wanted to, is show up and say, you can't believe how bad these Jewish people are. He could have brought hell and brimstone down on the Jewish ghetto that's there. If you go there today, I wanted to see it, so we went and took a look at it. And all these little cool remains are still the remains, even though they're surrounded by modern buildings. That's the Jewish ghetto. That's the Jewish quarter from the first century at the time of Paul. Paul never went there as far as we know, but everybody that he's talking to came from there. The point I made on your outline is note the jobs you have not been given. I say this because of not what Paul does, but what Paul doesn't do. For two and a half years, he's been a prisoner because of Jewish lies. For the last 30 years, he's been tormented by virtually every Orthodox Jew he's come into contact with. They're the reason he's got welts on his body. They're the reason he's got daily migraines. They're the reason he can't see because they've assaulted him, beat him, stoned him, done everything they can to kill him and shut him up. And he's got every reason to show up in the center of the Roman government and play judge, jury, and executioner. We fall into this trap so many times because we are evangelical Christians. I am shocked how many Christians put it upon themselves to play judge, jury, and executioner for somebody that struggles with some sin in life or does them wrong or does something to hurt them. And it's amazing, particularly when it deals with moral failures within somebody in the church, we have no problem ostracizing them. We have no problem looking at somebody else in the community or in our world possessing judgment on their lifestyle or their choices, and we play judge, jury, and executioner. The problem is God never gave any of us that job. That's God's job. We take it upon ourselves, and it's the one of the greatest threats to evangelical Christianity because of what evangelical Christianity does to itself in light of the Bible. There's a really easy diagnostic to decide whether or not you're guilty of this. And the diagnostic is, how do you view yourself in reference to your Bible? Are you under your Bible or are you over your Bible? If you're under your Bible, you don't dare play judge, jury, and executioner with anybody on the planet Earth, Christian or non-Christian, because you're under your Bible and you realize the judge, jury, and executioner is God Almighty. It's never us. If you are arrogantly over your Bible and you, you see yourself as a holder of God's divine truth and one of the few receptors of God's truth, then you, you see yourself over God's word and you have no problem playing judge, jury, or executioner. Be really, 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 really careful because misplaying this issue is what leads so many non-believers to think we're hypocrites and they wouldn't be caught dead in church on a Sunday morning. We got to be really careful about this. But what's going on here is providence. Providence is God working out things before you show up. Before Paul shows up, they don't have people coming in from Jerusalem saying, Paul's on his way, get our witnesses ready. You do not have people sending messages in about what to do to Paul, how to kill him during the transit or anything like that. God prepared the way before he got there. So when he shows up, the Jews are like, yeah, we've heard of Christianity, but we've never heard of you. Definition of providence. It's the divine intervention in the affairs of man within the confines of natural law to bring about God's objectives. 
It's you going into a relationship or going into a job situation or going into any kind of opportunity, and you can see when you get there, God has paved the way before you got there. You can tell God worked in the heart of somebody. He brought somebody maybe from your past in. God did something to make it better when you arrived in order to let you do something. That's God's providence. So the application for us is we've got to realize God paves the way before us because he sees what's going ahead on in front of us. The paradox we live in and the frustration we live in is we can't see over the hills in front of us. God can, and his providence is he's sovereign enough to not only see it, to prepare the way before we get there. So providence is before the relationship, before the business opportunity, before the new house, before dealing with the, the, the problem that you've got with somebody in life, God is two steps ahead to work on the heart, to work on the circumstances, to work on them. And so Paul was able to witness to them and some heard and some believed and some didn't. Our next point, God's word is the center of this whole paradox. Verses 23 and 28. When they had appointed a day for him, so Paul picks a day and says, bring all the Jewish leaders. They came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed. What did he teach them? What I highlighted in gold was what I taught you guys a year and two years ago, the scarlet thread. He taught them from Genesis to the end of Malachi, Jesus. Jesus in creation, Jesus with the patriarchs, Jesus with Moses, Jesus with the prophets, Jesus with the kings, Jesus in the symbolism of everything they were doing in the temple and the tabernacle and everything the priest wore. Everything I taught you guys for a year and a half, that's what he taught those guys it took me a year and a half to teach you guys. Paul did it in one day because he's awesome and I'm not. <laughs> but it was a really long Bible study because it was morning till nighttime. So it was a really long study, but they stayed. The point is with God's word, it's not up to us who believes. Paul is the most persuasive, the most educated, the most awesome biblical teacher that has ever lived on the planet earth at this point in time. And even he cannot get some people to believe. If the Apostle Paul can't convert everybody he talks to, why do we delusionally believe we can? <laughs> it's not up to us. It's up to God. Our obligation is be obedient and try and let God work. Here, God worked among some of the Jews. He did not work among the others. It's up to God to decide why that's true. At the end of the passage, I described it as God's freedom. And it's a weird word to use, but in the midst of the paradox, Paul finds freedom. Verse 30, classically understated by Luke. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's the end of the book of Acts. He's there for two years, and Caesar does not give him a trial. Nero is too busy being crazy Nero. Paul is the last thing he wants to mess with. Inevitably, they would have called witnesses, and the witnesses had two years to show up, and Nero's not in any charge to do it. The protection God gave him is no one can stone him, no one can beat him up, no one can whip him for two years. All he does is write Bible. 
he writes like you're not going to believe. He was allowed to preach. He could bring in small groups. He could bring in the Christian Jews. He could bring in the Christian Gentiles. We're going to learn later he brought in Roman guards that weren't even guarding him for Bible study. You're going to learn he bring in, brings in members of Caesar's family, his wife, his children, his servants come to Paul's house in order to be taught Bible. And while there, he's able to do discipleship and he's able to write. While there, he writes the book of Ephesians, he writes the book of Colossians, he writes the book of Philemon, he writes the book of Philippians, which we're going to start studying as soon as we come back from Thanksgiving break. The freedom God gave him, the world would look at and say he's in prison. We look at it and say what amazing freedom to do what God wanted him to do in the total protection of this amazing thing of having Caesar's guards chained to you so no one can mess with you. It's an incredible story. Let me give you some application in the last five minutes we've got. I gave you three fill-in-the-blanks. First fill-in-the-blank is embrace the incomprehensible paradoxes of your life with God. In other words, what drives you crazy because you can't see over the horizon, what you've got to be able to know is we worship a God and a Savior that is one step ahead of us and can always see what's ahead of you. Our God is greater than the earthly power, higher than any human scheme. Above all of mankind's manipulations, he's God Almighty. His plans and purposes will not be swayed or altered. Our God reigns on high. He's sovereign over the affairs of man. That's why you embrace the paradox. You say, God, why don't you answer my prayer? God, I don't understand. God, what are you doing in my life? It's falling apart, not building up. The point here is you embrace the paradox of God because when you're in that point of brokenness, for the first time, God's got you where he wants you. Second point, bloom where God has planted you. My point here is not Paul. It's with the guy next to him, Dr. Luke. During those two years, Dr. Luke does not have to worry about Paul's health because the emperor's guards make sure he's fed and healthy and has the best Roman doctors that are available in Rome. So what does Dr. Luke do? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes two books. He writes the gospel that bears his name during those two years, and he writes the book that we just studied, the book of Acts. Why did he write those two books? Well, the obvious reason is the Holy Spirit inspired him to write parts of our Bible. But in Dr. Luke's mind, he wrote it to help his friend get out of prison. Both letters are addressed to a dude named Theophilus. Tons of debate over who Theophilus is. I've studied this for years. My conclusion is Theophilus is the Roman official responsible for the trial of Paul. Today, if I'm going to trial as a lawyer, it's just like Romans going to trial 2,000 years ago. The parties to the case present papers to the judge to say why they're right, why they're guilty, why they're not guilty, why they're liable, why they're not liable. And we know from a number of things, the way Paul writes is writing a legal document. He uses formal legalese. He talks about eyewitnesses. He talks about his careful investigations. He talks about the instruction that this person has received from someone <laughs> to evaluate Paul and evaluate Christianity. He emphasizes just like Christ was declared by the government innocent three times, Paul has already been declared innocent three times, and he uses the same phraseology, most excellent, 
which was the phraseology Paul used at trial with Felix and Festus. For these reasons, there's a really good argument in Luke's mind that the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostle were Luke's papers to give to the judge or the judge's magistrate and say, Paul ought to be freed. He's not guilty of anything except being a good Jew and a good Christian. Last point, Luke and Paul got through this by trusting the Word of God. Luke never had a one-on-one word from God or from Jesus himself. Paul did, a little bit different. But since both of those guys wrote more than half of our Bible, what we put ourselves under is God's word. In the midst of the paradox, it's highly unlikely God's going to show up and give you a direct word and say, here's exactly what I want you to do. The reason why is if we did, we'd stop reading his word. To keep us in his word, we don't get an audible word. We get the Holy Spirit moving in our heart. We get friends who can give us godly advice sometimes. We can get confirmation through what we call open doors and closed doors, which is another way of talking about the providence of God that I just taught you about. But all of those things have got to be under the word of God. If any of that's inconsistent with God's word, we don't do it. If it's consistent with God's word, that's confirmation to go ahead. So that's how you deal with the paradox of life, and that's where we get through the end of the book of Acts. As I said, Paul is 60 years old. He's got six more years to live. He's got six more years of ministry. He's going to write seven books of the Bible that I'm going to teach you, and in the middle of all of those books, he gives us a little biographical insight of what does it mean to be in prison and house arrest. What does it mean to be free again, because he's going to go free again. And then what does it mean to be in prison one more time? And that's a really, really bad prison that I'm going to show you pictures of because it still exists. After Thanksgiving, we're going to start with one of my favorite books in the Bible. Paul's in prison. He's struggling with this paradox because he gets today's lesson. It's with greater joy than he's ever had in his whole life. Philippians is the book of joy, and I'm going to show you why and show you some awesome little insight into the life of Paul when we come back in December. So we're going to knock out Philippians in a week or two, maybe three. I think we can do it in two weeks, and uh, you're going to love the study. So if you love this, come back, and we're going to do a deep dive into Paul in Philippians, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come and study Paul to study your word, and most importantly, to study you. And during the midst of our struggles and our frustration and our just upsetness over unanswered prayer and not figuring out why everything just seems to be going wrong in life, we can resolve that paradox through the lessons that you've taught us in your word, through the lessons and the example of Paul. And we ask for the strength that only you can give to do that. We ask for the wisdom that only you can give to understand how to do that and the peace in our hearts as we struggle through that uncertainty, as we struggle through that mystery, that mystery to know that you always love us, you're always with us, you'll never abandon us, and through those trials and circumstances that we can't figure out, you can use us to be a witness to the broken people all around us. Thank you for the opportunity. Keep us safe as we go our separate ways for Thanksgiving. Bring us safe back here together in December, and we ask all these things for your precious and holy name. Amen. See you all next time. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.